I mean, what do you pray for your kids as a born-again Christian? That they'll just be wealthy and famous and well-known? That's not the most important thing to you. The most important thing to you is that they would meet Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because you understand what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In a message entitled, Predestined to Hell, Pastor Brogy has spent the last couple of days overviewing Romans chapter 9, which addresses the issue of election and predestination. Much has been written about the meaning of this chapter, but as we conclude today, Pastor Brogy will show that references to God's choice in this chapter are always regarding the nation Israel rather than individuals. This need to choose was forced because of Abraham's failure to trust God implicitly when he promised that he and his wife Sarah would bear a child who would be the father of a great multitude. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins reading from Genesis 21, which addresses the problem that came from Abraham and Sarah's failure to fully comply with God. Genesis 21 and verse 5. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah uh, that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But notice God's startling response here in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be made, named. So God knew it was impossible for both children to live under the same roof and for his will to be accomplished. The first time Abraham listened to Sarah, he should not have listened. But on this occasion, though her attitude may need some adjustment, she is absolutely right, and God says, listen to her. Now, it may seem unfair, may seem unfair in that Hagar had no real choice in the decision, and Ishmael didn't ask to be born into this situation. But God takes Sarah's side. God specifically says, drive out this maid and her son. And for what reason? For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Sarah knew they both couldn't be heirs. God could not take the families that would come from Ishmael or the families that would come from Isaac and bring the Messiah through both. God had to choose. And God made his choice. God said, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And we just read that in Romans 9, did we not? That's where this quotation comes from. Messiah couldn't come through both groups of people. He had to come through the son of promise. And the son of promise is not Ishmael, it is Isaac. And so understand, in God choosing Isaac, he's not choosing, as we're going to see in just a moment, one person to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. 
He is making a national selection here. That through one man's lineage, through one nation of people, Messiah is going to come. And that's going to become even clearer when we look at the second example. So God says here in verse 13 of Genesis 21, And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he's your descendant. And of course, God kept his promise to Ishmael. He made him a great nation. And indeed, the Arab people are seen in his line today. Now, turn a few more pages to Genesis 25. I want you to see what happens when Ishmael dies. Genesis 25. We have a little record of his death in verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. The scripture plainly says that his son, Ishmael, was gathered to his people. So while Ishmael does not share in the same blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, and that Messiah doesn't come through his line, nonetheless, God blesses this man, and the specifics here is that he was gathered to his people. What does that mean? Well, it's already been used of Abraham that Abraham was gathered to his people. In fact, when you come into the New Testament, one metaphor that God uses to describe heaven, Jesus uses it in Luke 16. It's called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And so Old Testament believing Jews went to Abraham's bosom or paradise. Abraham was a believer. He's the father of the faithful. He's the friend of all who believe. So who is Ishmael's people? Think about it. There's only two people that he has at this point who have died. One is his daddy. His name is Abraham. And he went to heaven. He went to Abraham's bosom. And the other is his mother, Hagar. Was Hagar a believer? Yes. Her conversion is described in Genesis 16. So to be gathered to his people is to be gathered to his daddy and mommy. In New Testament theology, we would say he went home to be with the Lord. Now go back to Romans 9. This is important. I want you to see that because it lays the foundation for what we are examining here this morning. Follow the flow of thought and don't get lost in the forest. In verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, he he describes his burden for his Jewish brothers. And then in verses 4 and 5, he describes how God has blessed his Jewish brothers. And so in verse 6, he asks a simple question, has God's word failed? Has the rejection of the Jews in Paul's day and in our day to receive Jesus as a Savior, does that mean the promise has failed? And Paul's answer would be no, not if you believe God is sovereign. Why? Because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, everyone in physical Israel is not a member of true Israel, which is why many do not believe. And then beyond that, to illustrate it further, not everyone who physically, literally descended from Abraham was a recipient of the covenant, for they are not all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Look at verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. It's not Abraham's other children by Hagar. He had Ishmael through Hagar. And then if you remember, after Sarah died, he got married again. Some of you don't know that, do you? He married Keturah. God had revitalized his body. He had six more children, six boys. Their names are listed in Chronicles and in Genesis. There may have been snow on the roof, but there was fire in the furnace. God God, God regenerated this guy. And so those children 
were not the recipients of this chosen nation. It was the son of promise that are regarded as the descendants. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. And he quotes Genesis 18, verse 10 that we just read. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So it is not the natural children, the literal physical descendants of Abraham, but it's the son of promise by whom the Messiah is going to come. Now we'll see next time that Isaac and Rebekah had twins, Jacob and Esau. And Esau as the firstborn should have been chosen, but God chose Jacob. And Ishmael, the firstborn, should have been chosen, but God chose Isaac. Why? Because God is sovereign and God knows what he is about. Now, we've just cracked the door, but let's make some application this morning, all right? Three applications. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So there's some lessons that we can learn that we can apply from this passage of Scripture. Number one, I learned that God in electing Israel, their unbelief does not mean He has abandoned Israel. God in electing Israel, choosing them to be the nation of the world, to be his chosen people, their unbelief does not mean that he's abandoned them. Why? Because he is a promise-keeping God. Now, one of the reasons I took the time to go through those passages in Genesis to underscore the unconditional nature of this covenant is because the way you understand God's dealing with the nation of Israel will cause you to accordingly approach Romans chapter 9. Now, the man who came up with the idea that God chose some people to go to heaven and some to go to hell was a man named St. Augustine. He lived 430, or he died in 430 AD. He was a, if I can use the term, a staunch Calvinist, though Calvin, of course, comes over a thousand years later in 1509. But St. Augustine is considered the father of predestination. And St. Augustine believed that God was done with the Jewish people because they had rejected their Messiah. Now understand, there are some covenants, and we looked at some, if you were here last time, you might want to go home and listen to that message. There are some covenants that God made with the people of Israel that were conditional in nature, just like today. There are some promises in the New Testament that are conditioned on a response that you have to make. For instance, if my word abides in you and you abide in me, ask whatever you wish it will done, be done for you. That's a conditional promise. There are other promises in the word of God that are unconditional in nature. God's going to do it no matter what. Every person in this room saved or lost someday is going to be raised up, either into a body suited for heaven or a body suited for heaven. That is hell. That is an unconditional promise. God is going to fulfill it. But St. Augustine took some of the passages that were conditional in nature and he applied it to the Abrahamic covenant. But he should not have. And so he viewed the Jewish people in a very negative light. And if you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. or in Israel, and I've been to both, it's embarrassing to see the quotations that are on the walls by St. Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. St. Augustine said this in his work called Confessions. He said, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews, with your two-edged sword, so that there should be none to oppose your word. Gladly would I have them die to themselves and live to you. Now again, Augustine, you're going to meet him in heaven someday. And some would argue from a later commentary he wrote on Psalm 59 
that he argued they shouldn't be killed, but uh, they should be left alive as an example of unbelief. But you read, and I could have read many more quotations by him, and they are embarrassing. Some of the things that he said about the Jewish people. And he had adopted some views that were later embraced in Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church said, and they still teach it, they taught it in Vatican I in response to Luther's 95 Theses. They reaffirmed it at Vatican I and Vatican II that they are the chosen people, that God is done with the people of Israel, that the one true people of God now is the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, St. Augustine had a lot of interesting doctrines that Roman Catholics ended up adopting, that being one of them. Of course, Augustine would have looked at it differently that not this organization, but those true believers are the new Israel, so to speak. He believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary, and the Catholic Church ended up adopting that. He believed in a large number of sacraments as they ended up believing in that. Later on, you have two men, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who come out of Catholicism. Now, the reformers get a lot of press, as I told you before, because they are part of the institutionalized church. But apart from the Roman church, there were always fellowships of born-again believers who had nothing to do with Catholicism, and they weren't protesting Rome because they weren't a part of Rome. But you had men like Martin Luther and John Calvin who are in the midst of Catholicism. They see the abuses that are there and it causes them to go to the scripture and to read it and they learn the true way of salvation. But they end up adopting a lot of Catholic dogmas because they're so close to it and they just put a different spin on it. So for Martin Luther and John Calvin, yes, God is done with the nation of Israel. The Jews have no significance at all today. And this is typically what we would call today even Reformed theology. And so one leader in Reformed theology recently said, I have no desire to go to Israel. No desire at all. I'm not going there, plan never to go there. Why do you say that? Because he doesn't think there's any significance for the people of Israel and for that piece of property. And so these guys said some really harsh things. Let me read to you, if I might, Luther. You'll see this on the wall in the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. When then, what then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. In this way, we cannot quench the inextinguishable fire of divine rage nor convert the Jews. We must prayerfully and reverentially practice a merciful severity. First, their synagogue should be set on fire. And whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone from it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and his Christians. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. For they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. By the way, Hitler had these quotations read in the churches during the Second World War. John Calvin said this of the Jews in his day. There, meaning the Jews in the context, they're rotten, 
and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Now, please don't misunderstand that there are people in the reform camp today that would find these views extremely objectionable. But what I'm wanting you to see is that St. Augustine, who planted the seeds for Roman Catholicism, and Luther and Calvin, who came out of that Catholicism, had a view on Israel by which they believe God was done with Israel. So when they come to Romans 9, it's not national election. It's personal election. That God chooses Bill to go to heaven and Bob to go to hell. Now, we've already seen, already hinted in this chapter, not more than hinted, expressly said that God's not done with Israel. If you look back at verse 3, if you remember, Paul said, For I wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul said, I'd be willing to go to hell if they could somehow go to heaven. I'd be willing to be separated for the sake of my kinsmen, who are, notice verse 4, Israelites to whom belongs, and he gives these seven blessings. And I noted for you last time, it's not a past tense to whom belonged, but to whom belongs. This is an everlasting covenant that God is going to keep. Jeremiah the prophet could not have said it any more explicitly than he did. Let me read to you. If you know Jeremiah, he speaks of a future time called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus called it the great tribulation. And it's during that seven-year period that the Jewish nation are going to wake up and they're going to believe that Jesus is Lord. But Jeremiah reminds us that God will never be done with his people Israel. Let me read to you Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name, If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. God is saying, listen, the power that I displayed in creating my mighty universe and in preserving it, it is with that same power that I preserved the Jewish people as a nation. And indeed he has. They may not have always been organized politically as a nation, but he said and promised they would never be destroyed. Why? Because it's an everlasting covenant that God made with this people. And so the church is not the new Israel as in Reformed and in his replacement theology. When we come to chapter 11 of Romans, Paul's going to unfold this even further. He says in 11.1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so some of the promises that God makes in his word are unconditional in nature, and this is one of them. And when God gives an unconditional promise, you can bank on it, he's going to keep it. And that's something we can take home today. You ought to find out what the promises of God is because God is a God of integrity and he will keep his word. Second, I learned from this small portion of scripture that in God electing Israel, it does not mean that all Hebrews are saved. It does not mean all Hebrews are saved. 
We talked about this last time with the rebellion of Korah. And Paul has already made this distinction in Romans 2. Let me refresh your mind with Romans 2, 27. Paul says, and he who is physically uncircumcised, he's talking about Gentiles who didn't get circumcised in the first century. He who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, a mark that he's been converted, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law in circumcision, namely Jews, are a transgressor of the law? Implied answer, yes, he will. A saved, transformed, cleansed Gentile who shows the fruit of it, though he's never been circumcised, he will become your judge. And so he says in verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, meaning a true Jew, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, certainly you could apply the same to us as Gentiles today. We only have a couple of Jewish believers in this fellowship. 99.9% of us are Gentiles, non-Jews. You could say in verses 28 and 29, for he is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is baptism that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Christian who is one inwardly, and baptism is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not of the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So we could equally say, we're not all Christians just because we're born into a Christian family. There has to be an inward change. And the Jews reasoned that way in their day, and we reason the same way in our day. We don't say, well, we've been circumcised, but we say we've been baptized. And Paul says, big deal. If you haven't been changed on the inside, it means nothing. You can't just hold on to the fact that you're a Jew. That does not automatically save you. Third and finally, I'm reminded that in God electing Israel, God is not rejecting you. Now, we've already studied this morning that in God choosing Abraham's descendants, or literally his seed, his sperma, through Isaac, he is not rejecting Ishmael. God made it very clear that it was through Isaac's seed and not Ishmael's seed that the Messiah would come. God in his sovereignty chose Isaac over Ishmael. He had to choose one of them. They couldn't both be progenitors of the Messiah, and God chose Isaac. But in saying that, we must not read into the Apostle Paul's argument any suggestion that because Ishmael is not chosen, that this morning Ishmael is in hell. And that's the way virtually all Reformed teachers take this text. Isaac's in heaven this morning, Ishmael's in hell this morning. But is that really what the text says? Is that really what Genesis taught? Abraham was told, we read it a moment ago in Genesis 21, 12, that he was not to be distressed concerning Ishmael. He was not to be grievous. Literally, the Hebrew text reads, over Ishmael. Here's the man who's the friend of God, the father of the faithful. And God said, I've heard your prayer about Ishmael. What do you suppose he prayed for Ishmael for? Just that he'd, he'd be wealthy? That he'd be famous? Not on your life. I mean, what do you pray for your kids as a born-again Christian? That they'll just be wealthy and famous and well-known? 
That's not the most important thing to you. The most important thing to you is that they would meet Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because you understand what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. So here's Abraham. Abraham, you have every reason in the world to be distressed if God chose Isaac to go to heaven and Ishmael to go to hell. But he did not. Abraham loved this boy, Ishmael. He had a deep affection for this boy. And he was gathered to his people. He went home to be with the Lord. Now, please understand, don't ever get the idea in God choosing Isaac over Ishmael that God loves the Jewish people and he doesn't love Gentiles. And don't ever make the picture that the, the Jewish man wears a white hat and the Arab wears a black hat. Because God loves the Arab as much as he loves the Jew. And Paul, though he is grieved over his people, his kinsmen according to the flesh, over his Jewish brothers, he spends his whole life reaching Gentiles. And you ought to be just as eager in reaching a Jew for Jesus as you would an Arab for Jesus. This is an everlasting covenant. We just cracked the door and understand this whole thing of election. We've got several more illustrations. But if you will follow it and study it and learn it, it will become clear to you. Now, you may not have understood a lot of what I've spoken of today. I understand this is not the milk of the word. In a broad sense, all the word is described as milk and that it's pure and unadulterated. But in a secondary sense, God describes some aspects of the Bible as meat and other aspects as simple as milk. We're in the meat of the word in Romans 9, and we're not going to skip it. There's something here for everyone. But while you may not have understood this whole thing about election, you may be asking yourself this morning, well, if God really chose the Jewish people, does he love me? And the answer is yes. And if you understand that this Jewish man, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus, came to this planet and died in your place, bearing the very wrath that you deserve, and he demonstrated his ability to do that when he was raised from the dead, then you understand everything you need to know to be saved. And you can call upon him today in faith. And I invite you to do that. Now, our Father, thank you that in the end, the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. And I pray today for someone here who's really not sure of whether or not heaven is their home. They hope it is. They think it might be, but they don't know. And your word teaches they don't know because they've never truly received and trusted Christ to save them. But thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. As your word says, you cannot lie. It's impossible for you to lie that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone this morning, Father, in simple childlike faith to believe your promise and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave your Son, that you have called for yourself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Please protect our hearts from getting it into our thinking that there are some people who have absolutely no chance, that you have destined some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. Guard our hearts from that kind of thinking. In the days ahead, may we study and show ourselves approved, carefully searching the Scriptures, 
that we might understand and apply what they say. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel is for everybody. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To listen again to today's Search the Scriptures message entitled, Predestined to Hell? Call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM45. Or you can download the Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we'll continue our look at Romans chapter 9 as we begin a message entitled, Chosen from the Womb. Join us then as we search the scriptures.